Section 31 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cathy Barrett. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 31. Henry II, 1547 to 1559, Part 5. Guise was one of those who knew that it is as necessary to follow up a success accomplished as to proceed noiselessly in the execution of a sudden success. When he was master of Calais, he moved rapidly upon the neighboring fortresses of Guines and Ham, and he had them in his power within a few days, notwithstanding a resistance more stout than he had encountered at Calais. During the same time, the Duke of Nevers, encouraged by such examples, also took the field again, and gained possession, in Champagne and the neighborhood, of the strong castles of Herbemont, Jamoigne, Chigny, Rosignol, and Villemont. Guise had no idea of contenting himself with his successes in the west of France. His ambition carried him into the east also, to the environs of Metz, the scene of his earliest glory. He heard that Vieilleville, who had become governor of Metz, was setting about the reduction of Thionville, quote, the best picture of a fortress I ever saw, says Moluc. I have heard, wrote Guise to Vieilleville, that you have a fine enterprise on hand. I pray you do not commence the execution of it in any fashion whatever, until I be with you. Having given a good account of Calais and Guines as lieutenant-general of his majesty in this realm, I should be very vexed if there should be done therein anything of honour and importance without my presence. He arrived before Thionville on the 4th of June, 1558. Vieilleville and his officers were much put out at his interference. Quote, the duke might surely have dispensed with coming, said Destrée, chief officer of artillery. It will be easy for him to swallow what is all chewed ready for him. End quote. But the bulk of the army did not share this feeling of jealousy. When the pioneers, drawn up, caught sight of Guise, quote, "'Come on, sir,' they cried. "'Come and let us die before Thionville. "'We have been expecting you this long while.'" The siege lasted three weeks longer. Guise had with him two comrades of distinction, the Italian Peter Strozzi and the Gascon Blaise de Montluc. On the 20th of June, Strozzi was mortally wounded by an arquebus shot, at the very side of Guise, who was talking to him with a hand upon his shoulder. Quote, "'Ah, by God's head, sir!' cried Strozzi in Italian. The king to-day loses a good servant, and so does your excellency. Guise, greatly moved, attempted to comfort him, and spoke to him the name of Jesus Christ, but Strozzi was one of those infidels so common at that time in Italy. Zdeath, said he, what Jesus are you come hither to remind me of? I believe in no God, my game is played. Quote, you will appear to-day before his face, persisted Guise, in the earnestness of his faith. Zdeath, replied Strozzi, I shall be where all the others are who have died in the last six thousand years. The eyes of Guise remained fixed a while upon his comrade, dying in such a frame of mind, but he soon turned all his thoughts once more to the siege of Thionville. Montluc supported him valiantly. A strong tower still held out, and Montluc carried it at the head of his men. Guise rushed up and threw his arm round the warrior's neck, saying, quote, Monseigneur, I now see clearly that the old proverb is quite infallible. A good horse will go to the last. I am off at once to my quarters to report the capture to the king. Be assured that I shall not conceal from him the service you have done. The reduction of Thionville was accomplished on that very day, June twenty-second, fifteen fifty-eight. That of Arlon, a rich town in the neighborhood, followed very closely. 
Guise, thoroughly worn out, had ordered the approaches to be made next morning at daybreak, requesting that he might be left to sleep until he awoke of himself. When he did awake, he inquired whether the artillery had yet opened fire. He was told that Montluc had surprised the place during the night. Quote, "'That is making the pace very fast,' said he, as he made the sign of the cross, but he did not care to complain about it. Under the impulse communicated by him, the fortunes of France were reviving everywhere. A check received before Gravelines on the 13th of July, 1558, by a division commanded by de Termes, governor of Calais, did not subdue the national elation and its effect upon the enemy themselves. Quote, "'It is an utter impossibility for me to keep up the war,' wrote Philip II, on the 15th of February, 1559, to Granvelle. On both sides there was a desire for peace, and conferences were opened at Cateau-Cambrecy. On the 6th of February, 1559, a convention was agreed upon for a truce which was to last during the whole course of the negotiation, and for six days after the separation of the plenipotentiaries, in case no peace took place.' it was concluded on the second of april fifteen fifty nine between henry the second and elizabeth who had become queen of england at the death of her sister mary november seventeen fifteen fifty eight and next day april third between henry the second philip the second and the allied princes of spain amongst others the prince of orange william the silent who whilst serving in the spanish army was fitting himself to become the leader of the reformers and the liberator of the low countries by the treaty with england france was to keep calais for eight years in the first instance and on a promise to pay five hundred thousand gold crowns to queen elizabeth or her successors the money was never paid and calais was never restored and this without the english governments having considered that it could make the matter a motive for renewing the war by the treaty with spain france was to keep metz toul and verdun and have back saint quentin le catelet and ham but she was to restore to spain or her allies a hundred and eighty-nine places in flanders piedmont tuscany and corsica the malcontents for the absence of political liberty does not suppress them entirely raised their voices energetically against this last treaty signed by the king with the sole desire it was supposed of obtaining the liberation of his two favourites the constable de montmorency and marshal de saint andre who had been prisoners in spain since the defeat at saint quentin quote, their ransom it was said has cost the kingdom more than that of francis the first guise himself said to the king Quote, a stroke of your majesty's pen costs more to france than thirty years of war cost ever since that time the majority of historians even the most enlightened have joined in the censure that was general in the sixteenth century but their opinion will not be endorsed here the places which france had won during the war and which she retained by the peace metz toul and verdun on her frontier in the north-east facing the imperial or spanish possessions and boulogne and calais on her coasts in the north-west facing england were as regarded the integrity of the state and the security of the inhabitants of infinitely more importance than those which she gave up in flanders and italy the treaty of cateau cambrecy too marked the termination of those wars of ambition and conquest which the kings of france had waged beyond the alps an injudicious policy which for four reigns had crippled and wasted the resources of france in adventurous expeditions beyond the limits of her geographical position and her natural and permanent interests more or less happily the treaty of cateau cambrecy had regulated all those questions of external policy which were burdensome to france she was once more at peace with her neighbours and seemed to have nothing more to do than to gather in the fruits thereof 
but she had in her own midst questions far more difficult of solution than those of her external policy, and these perils from within were threatening her more seriously than any from without. Since the death of Francis I, the religious ferment had pursued its course, becoming more general and more fierce. The creed of the reformers had spread very much. Their number had very much increased. Permanent churches, professing and submitting to a fixed faith and discipline, had been founded. That of Paris was the first in 1555. And the example had been followed at Orléans, at Chartres, at Lyon, at Toulouse, at Rochelle, in Normandie, in Touraine, in Guienne, in Poitou, in Dauphiny, in Provence, and in all the provinces, more or less. In 1561 it was calculated that there were twenty-one hundred and fifty reformed, or, as the expression then was, rectified, dressés, churches. Quote, and this is no fanciful figure, it is the result of a census taken at the instigation of the deputies who represented the reformed churches at the conference of Poissy on the demand of Catherine de Medici, and in conformity with the advice of Admiral de Coligny. End quote. It is clear that the movement of the Reformation in the sixteenth century was one of those spontaneous and powerful movements which have their source and derive their strength from the condition of men's souls and of whole communities, and not merely from the personal ambitions and interests which soon come and mingle with them, whether it be to promote or to retard them. One thing has been already stated here, and confirmed by facts. It was specially in France that the Reformation had this truly religious and sincere character. Very far from supporting or tolerating it, the sovereign and public authorities opposed it from its very birth. Under Francis I it had met with no real defenders but its martyrs, and it was still the same under Henry II. During the reign of Francis I, within a space of twenty-three years, there had been eighty-one capital executions for heresy. During that of Henry II, twelve years, there were ninety-seven for the same cause. And at one of these executions Henry II was present in person, on the space in front of Notre-Dame, a spectacle which Francis I had always refused to see. In 1551... 1557 and 1559, Henry II, by three royal edicts, kept up and added to all the prohibitions and penalties in force against the reformers. In 1550, the massacre of the Vaudiens was still in such lively and odious remembrance that a noble lady of Provence, Madame de Santal, did not hesitate to present a complaint in the name of her despoiled, proscribed, and murdered vassals against the Cardinal de Tournon, the Comte de Grignan, and the premier président Meignier d'Opède, as having abused, for the purpose of getting authority for this massacre, the religious feelings of the king, who on his deathbed had testified his remorse for it. Quote, this cause, says de Thou, was pleaded with much warmth, and accompanied fifty audiences, with a large concourse of people, but the judgment took all the world by surprise. Guerin alone, advocate-general in 1545, having no support at court, was condemned to death, and was scapegoat for all the rest. Dopède defended himself with fanatical pride, saying that he only executed the king's orders, like Saul, whom God commanded to exterminate the Amalekites. He had the Duke of Guise to protect him, and he was sent back to discharge the duties of his office. Such was the prejudice of the Parliament of Paris against the Reformers, that it interdicted the hedge-schools, or École Buissonnière, schools which the Protestants held out in the country to escape from the jurisdiction of the precentor of Notre-Dame de Paris, who had the sole supervision of primary schools. Hence comes the proverb, to play truant, 
faire l'école buissonnière, to go to hedge school. All the resources of French civil jurisdiction appeared to be insufficient against the reformers. Henry II asked the Pope for a bull, transplanting into France the Spanish Inquisition, the only real means of extirpating the root of the errors. It was the characteristic of this Inquisition that it was completely in the hands of the clergy, and that its arm was long enough to reach the lay and the clerical indifferently. Pope Paul IV readily gave the king, in April 1557, the bull he asked for, but the Parliament of Paris refused to enregister the royal edict which gave force in France to the pontifical brief. In 1559 the Pope replied to this refusal by a bull which comprised in one and the same anathema all heretics, though they might be kings or emperors, and declared them to have, quote, forfeited their benefices, states, kingdoms, or empires, the which should devolve on the first to seize them, without power on the part of the Holy See itself to restore them, end quote. The Parliament would not consent to enregister the decree, unless there were put in it a condition to the effect that clerics alone should be liable to the Inquisition, and that the judges should be taken from amongst the clergy of France. For all their passionate opposition to the Reformation, the magistrates had no idea of allowing either the kingship or France to fall beneath the yoke of the papacy. Amidst all these disagreements and distractions in the very heart of Catholicism, the Reformation went on growing from day to day. In 1558, Lorenzo, the Venetian ambassador, set down even then the number of the reformers at 400,000. In 1559, at the death of Henry II, Claude Aton, a priest and contemporary chronicler on the Catholic side, calculated that they were nearly a quarter of the population of France. They held at Paris in May 1559 their first general synod, and eleven fully established churches sent deputies to it. This synod drew up a form of faith called the Gallican Confession, and likewise a form of discipline. Quote, the Burgess class, for a long while so indifferent to the burnings that took place, were astounded at last at the constancy with which the pile was mounted by all those men and all those women who had nothing to do but to recant in order to save their lives. Some could not persuade themselves that people so determined were not in the right. Others were moved with compassion. Their very hearts, say contemporaries, wept together with their eyes. End quote. It needed only an opportunity to bring these feelings out. Some of the faithful one day in the month of May 1558, on the public walk in the Pré aux Clairs, began to sing the psalms of Marot. Their singing had been forbidden by the Parliament of Bordeaux, but the practice of singing those psalms had but lately been so general that it could not be looked upon as peculiar to heretics. All who happened to be there, suddenly animated by one and the same feeling, joined in with the singers as if to protest against the punishments which were being repeated day after day. This manifestation was renewed on the following days. The King of Navarre, Anthony de Bourbon, Prince Louis de Conde, his brother, and many lords took part in it together with a crowd, it is said, of five or six thousand persons. It was not in the Pré aux Clairs only, and by singing, that this new state of mind revealed itself amongst the highest classes, as well as amongst the populace. The Queen of Navarre, Jeanne d'Albret, in her early youth, quote, was as fond of a ball as of a sermon, says Brantome, and she had advised her spouse, Anthony de Bourbon, who inclined towards Calvinism, not to perplex himself with all these opinions. End quote. In 1559 she was passionately devoted to the faith and the cause of the Reformation. 
With more levity, but still in sincerity, her brother-in-law, Louis de Conde, put his ambition and his courage at the service of the same cause. Admiral de Coligny's youngest brother, Francis d'Andelot, declared himself a reformer to Henry II himself, who in his wrath threw a plate at his head, and sent him to prison in the castle of Melun. Coligny himself, who had never disguised the favorable sentiments he felt towards the reformers, openly sided with them on the ground of his own personal faith, as well as of the justice due to them. At last the Reformation had really great leaders, men who had power and were experienced in the affairs of the world. It was becoming a political party as well as a religious conviction, and the French reformers were henceforth in a condition to make war as well as die at the stake for their faith. Hitherto they had been only believers and martyrs. They became the victors and the vanquished, alternately, in a civil war. A new position for them, and as formidable as it was grand. It was destined to bring upon them cruel trials and the worth of them in important successes. First the St. Bartholomew, then the accession of Henry the Fourth, and the Edict of Nantes. At a later period, under Louis the Thirteenth and Louis the Fourteenth, the complication of the religious question and the political question cost them the advantages they had won. The Edict of Nantes disappeared, together with the power of the Protestants in the state. They were no longer anything but heretics and rebels. A day was to come, when by the force alone of moral ideas, and in the name alone of conscience and justice, they would recover all the rights they had for a time possessed, and more also but in the sixteenth century that day was still distant and armed strife was for the reformers their only means of defence and salvation god makes no account of centuries and a great deal is required before the most certain and the most salutary truths get their place and their rights in the minds and communities of men on the twenty ninth of june fifteen fifty nine a brilliant tournament was celebrated in lists erected at the end of the street of st antoine almost at the foot of the bastille henry the second the queen and the whole court had been present at it for three days the entertainment was drawing to a close the king who had run several tilts quote, like a sturdy and skilful cavalier End quote, wished to break yet another lance, and bade the Comte de Montgomery, captain of the guards, to run against him. Montgomery excused himself, but the king insisted. The tilt took place. The two jousters, on meeting, broke their lances skilfully, but Montgomery forgot to drop at once, according to usage, the fragment remaining in his hand. He unintentionally struck the king's helmet, and raised the visor, and a splinter of wood entered Henry's eye, who fell forward upon his horse's neck. All the appliances of art were useless. The brain had been injured. Henry II languished for eleven days, and expired on the 10th of July, 1559, aged forty years and some months. An insignificant man, and a reign without splendor, though fraught with facts pregnant of grave consequences. End of section 31